Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Monday, January 1st, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I am speaking today with political correspondent Tal Schneider and blogs editor Miriam Hirschlag. Hi, good morning to you both. Hi, good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Jessica. Hi there. It is day 87 of the war. As 2023 turned to 2024, Hamas fired a very heavy barrage of rockets at the center and south, with sirens sounding in Modi'in, Rehovot, Cholon, Nesziona, Sderot, Ashdod, and other southern towns. And as Miriam just told us, I think her windows were rattling in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Yes, we were. Uh, it was very, very loud here, even though uh, the map doesn't say it was here. But our windows were shaking last night, seconds after we, I don't know, welcomed this new year in great hopes that it would be better than uh than the last one. Right. So that was the start of the new year here. Um, we also had the IDF saying on Sunday that it was beginning the process of releasing five brigades from combat in Gaza as the military gains c- increasing control on the ground. Uh, it also said that the war against Hamas would likely continue through 2024. Uh, the IDF has also ratcheted up attacks on southern Lebanon in recent days, aiming to push Hezbollah back from Israel's northern border. We will discuss an aspect of that, the tunnels built by Hezbollah in Israel's north, dug far long before the Hamas maze of tunnels in Gaza. We will also look at a dispute in the war cabinet and the topics and blogs that very much dominated the year for the Times of Israel. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, so Tal, as we've been discussing for weeks, we've got this very narrow war cabinet of the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz, with several observers, but it does not include Betzalo Smotrich, the Finance Minister and leader of the far-right Religious Zionism Party. He wants to be part of all the decisions about Gaza after the war, and we're seeing a dispute that is taking place between the War Cabinet and the regular cabinet. Tell us what you are thinking about all of that. Right. So yesterday we heard, you know, some quotes from inside the cabinet, not the narrow war cabinet, but the 
wider cabinet, during which um, Settlements Minister Orit Struck, she said to the general uh, that was uh, participating in, in the meeting, uh, he came to brief, you know, the ministers, and she asked him, is it true that the um, um, pilots, the air pilots are, um, you know, refusing to bomb the ground for conscious reasons? Uh, this was a very weird question, something that is out of the ordinary. Uh, Major General Eliezer Toledano, who is the head of the strategic uh, directorate at the, at the, you know, the general staff, he replied to her, um, no, that's not, you know, there isn't such a thing. But also he then, he then added, um, it's a horrible question. You know, she was implying as if pilots are refusing to bump because of maybe pacifist uh, considerations or anything like that while, you know, deserting or hurting the, the, the boots on the grounds. And it, it lies on the premises of last year, demonstrations and things that happened during that year where many reservists, including some pilots, said they will not participate in in in, in IDF operations because of uh, you know conscious reason because of the judicial overhaul. But once the war started, they all you know you know they they threw threw out all of those notions and they all ran to to help and to be part of the war. So it, it felt as if she's trying to trigger something, trying to trigger maybe a discourse. She said it, it is based on discussions she has with uh, many people from from her you know, family or from her um, settlement. She's from Hebron, by the way, um, that they said that they, they reported such things are happening. Um, you know, there is a... There is a, a, a a different situation in the southern part of Gaza. Uh, in Chanyones, it's a very crowded area. Many people that uh, ran away from the northern part are now situated in the southern part. So obviously, the Israeli Air Force is, is using its capabilities in a very specific way, if I may say it. Like a surgical... Surgical exactly. hits, in a sense. Trying very hard, working not to cause you know, civilian casualties. And we, we do see the numbers and they're unlike anything that happened two months ago in the northern part. So there is a, there is an effort to do that. But also we have to, you know, the when we have troops on the ground, the Air Force cannot, you know, just uh, bomb the area because of Israeli troops on the ground. And we must not forget the people who were abducted, who are under under um, the ground somewhere around those areas. So obviously the Air, the Air Force is, is, is working in a different uh, strategic way. This is the reason. It's not anything, some sort of conspiracy that she's trying to imply. And the cabinet was, you know, some people were shocked, but the prime minister, Netanyahu, said to uh, Toledano, to the general, to the major general, he said to him, you, he kind of scolded him. You know, he said, you, you, you can't, you, she can answer, she can ask whatever she wants. You cannot, you know, answer like that. You know, your, your uh, strategic answer was okay, but then you shouldn't criticize her because she's a minister. And this is where we at, you know, with this uh, cabinet, with this uh, Israel's very divided society. And she is implying in a, in a way, in a weird way that they're doing, they're working against their own people. It's, um, it's a horrible notion. And uh, and then she said at the end, she said, I can ask whatever questions I want, right? That was one of the quotes that came out of the meeting. 
Exactly. She um, sort of put her foot down, you know, towards the major general. One of an additional uh, minister who is also a combative pilot in his past, Yavkish, was scolding at her, telling her, "Why do you why do you ask those questions?" Uh, he's from the Likud, uh, more of a little bit right wing, but you know, more central right wing, less than settlements. Hence the reaction. Okay, thanks, Tal. All right, Miriam, turning to you in a little bit of a different focus for the moment. We want to hear what really resonated for bloggers this year. I think as we, I, I would imagine that like so many things, the last three months since October 7th drew the most reactions, writing, comments, dominated what you've had. But start us off. Is it true? Did, did October 7th dominate in a sense? And then leading from there? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, well, our, as we know, our whole site just became the fastest, literally the fastest growing uh, website in the world. And uh, that also was played out on the blogging platform, uh, where people had a lot to say. I mean, in general, we know it was a very heated year. So, you know, it was, it was hard to imagine that it was going to get stronger. But then, of course, this uh, unprecedented and, and terrifying uh, thing happened. And, you know, obviously, the emotions run extremely high. The post that most stands out for me is is actually from October 7th, when uh, Adele Raymer, uh, people will probably have seen her on social media, on on the blogging platform, heard her interviewed by Amanda. She wrote from her reinforced room on Kibbutz Nirim during the attack. And uh, the post is called, I hear massive shooting. I have never been this scared in my life. And uh, I realized on that day that she was posting updates on Facebook at starting 6.30 in the morning. And as she continued, I just kept updating the piece um, over the next 19 hours and added whatever she wrote so people could get a sense of what was going on, whether it was these horrifying sounds or just her, she was thirsty and frankly, she had to go to the bathroom and she was writing very frankly about just this very uh, intense experience. So that that was really, I think I'll, I'll carry that with me. On the horrific death toll of that day, there's an outstanding essay by the wonderful writer Ruth Afroni, who, God bless her, volunteered to write obituaries for several of the of the caregivers who were killed at Kibbutz Be'eri, including the piece we translated. It's about Paul Castelvi, but the piece really fleshes out the deep, tender love between Paul and Belle, his wife, now his widow, who gave birth to their first child a couple of weeks after the killing. So Ruth interviewed Belle for two hours and wrote just a gorgeous, heartbreaking piece called Paul, My Love and Belle, My Love. Um... There's a piece that uh, people shared very widely, and I understandably um, addressed to Shiri Bibas, who is she and her two redheaded children are probably the most recognized hostages uh, among those still still kept there. And and uh, you know, it, it, and the the gist of it is, we will never forgive ourselves if we don't get you, if we don't get you out of there. Trying to push the hostage issue to the very top of the priorities of you shared by a huge swath of Israelis. And one more. There was this tragic shooting um, and killing by IDF soldiers of three escaped Israeli hostages. And former Ambassador Michael Oren wrote a really powerful piece called Friendly Fire, that horrific oxymoron about his own personal brush with the kind of accidental deaths that have killed already one in five soldiers in the current ground war. 
29 soldiers, friendly fire. So casualties in these tragic accidents, he writes, are double those who are killed and those who must live with their fatal mistakes. So those were some that stood out from this period. So then going, I guess, going backwards, even though it seems, was there, t- was there a life before October 7th, right? Oh, it's so crazy. Like, we would only be talking, obviously, about politics and judicial reform, which, you know, we know began in the in January. That was the year that it was going to be until October 7th. So I would say I was pleased to have a real mix of views, um, including, you know, a piece by Moshe Coppell from the Kohelet Forum, widely credited as the architect of these changes. Um, but I highly recommend Yossi Kleine-Levy's take on this. Well, I recommend Yossi's take on anything, but he wrote a fantastic piece called The Jewish Path Back to Israeli Democracy, in which he predicted that the coalition would unravel, a prediction that has not come true. But it is just a beautiful piece. And uh, and maybe another piece uh, I can just mention by a woman named Didi Nachshon, whose brother was killed in the Yom Kippur War. And on mem- Memorial Day, she wrote that for the first time in all the years from since that happened, she and her family would not be going to his grave, but would instead be going to defend the country um, in in uh, protests. So that I found that very powerful. Okay, what about, are we allowed to talk about anything that is not related to the doom and the gloom and the sadness? Yes, and I think like that is the power of this platform where you really do get a a, a a tremendous mix. And, you know, we're humans. We're we're doing a lot all at once at the same time. A piece from the spring, or not, not a piece, actually, a project that we did um, is a collection of essays we published in the spring and summer in which each piece is about a different Israeli song. You can find it if you search that song on the Times of Israel. And the project maybe takes on a special meaning right now as so many people are evaluating, revisiting, maybe renewing uh, their own personal ties to Israel. And at least for me, nothing has bound me more to this country than Hebrew music. Yehudit Ravitz and Chava Alberstein and Shlomo Bar and Ehud Manar, they were my Hebrew teachers and they helped me crack the code of Israeli culture. So the essays are deeply personal encounters with a song that changed things for the writer. And I highly recommend checking them out if you want some, uh, some just some beautiful, I find comforting, actually. Uh, they're collected under the name That Song, and they all include videos of the song so you can hear what they're talking about. Okay, we'll, of course, link to that in the article that's attached to the podcast. But I do have one more question. The most popular post of the year, which is something that we do even in these times, what is the most popular post of the Times Visual <laughs> blogs this year? Uh, yeah, so I should say this was, I mean, we've never had a year like this in terms of the numbers. Um, and, I, and I don't judge posts in terms of quality. It's not always the same. But there's this post by a writer named Avi Lewis called Dear World, I Don't Care. And it channels the sense shared by so many Israelis and Israel supporters that the world has abandoned Israel and is blaming it for defending itself. And the piece is defiant and indignant and it it I think cathartic for people to read. And it, it has been seen by nearly half a million readers. It's just uh, just tre- tremendous. And as I said, overall, uh, we've we've never uh, we've seen tough times that call for that cause people that that uh, draw people in to write and to to engage, but nothing like what we've seen in the last few months. Thanks, Mary. We'll, of course, link to all of those at the bottom of the piece. So thanks for doing that with us. We're going to take another quick break. When we're back, we will talk to Tal about tunnels in the north. 
You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay. So, Tal, you have a piece in Zman in our uh, Hebrew sister site about tunnels in the north, tunnels dug by Hezbollah long before tunnels were dug uh, by Hamas in Gaza. And, of course, that's the front that we're all looking at nervously, uh, what will happen there over the next months. Tell us what you wrote about and what you found. Right, Jessica. Um, hard to reconnect to these, <laughs> you know, strategic problems after uh, Miriam's uh, presentation of uh, of songs and music. But we do have a major problem in Israel's northern border. The Radwan forces were trying to do the same as the Hamas forces in infiltrating Israel through tunnels or on on the top of the border and and getting into all of Israel's uh, kibbutz and kibbutzes and and villages on agricultural villages on the northern part of Israel doing the same plan they just didn't do it yet and now the plan is you know you know Hamas just took their own agenda uh, which caused a little bit of uh, frustration on the northern border uh, to Hezbollah the terror organization what they have in place is tunnels that are much longer and more sophisticated than what we saw in the southern part of Israel, if you can believe it. The research that was recently done by Alma Center, it's a research based on uh, former intelligence officers. One of them, Tal Beheri, uh, actually worked for years gathering what they call um, open source intelligence. He just located maps and videos of um, of um, you know, infrastructure work in done in, in the southern part of Lebanon. He came up with this um, huge tunnel, one huge big tunnel, major tunnel of uh, around 30 miles deep into the ground, very long, very sophisticated that connects many other tunnels. He calls it the land of the tunnels. They have strategic tunnels, they have uh, attack tunnels, they have procedure tunnels, many sorts of tunnels, um, all dug, dug underground in a very sophisticated way with electricity and communication and so on. And, um, you know, he, one of the revelations that he came up with under his research is the assistant that the Lebanese, the Hezbollah, obviously, got from North Korea. You know, North Korea has its own 
uh, tu- tunnel project in the southern part. And um, engineers from North Korea uh, actually traveled and helped built this major uh, land of tunnels in Lebanon. This went up all the way. They have proofs of, of those connections all the way up to 2014. Um, since then, it's um, they're doing their own work. They don't need the assistant. They just keep on, on working. And, you know, we have it in the Hebrew site. Uh, maybe we will have it in English site, but you can see actually map of he managed to find some sort of an open intelligence uh, mapping of the shaft and of the you know cross crossways between the upper world and the underworld where, where from where you you enter and so on it's very helpful information i suppose for the idf but we all know that as of now idf is not really dealing with the problem because we have all of the effort um, you know um, concentrated at the southern part of israel and the northern part of Israel, we all know from reports, is is under under fire, under war zone. Um, the inside part of Israel, in about around, uh, I would say, three miles into the country, is totally evacuated and and road are closed, and it's on attack day and night. So no residents. Uh, around around one hundred thousand people were evacuated from this area, uh, including one major city, and they are afraid to go back because as long as the tunnels are intact and, uh, you know, the, the area is very different from the southern part. It's much more rocky. It's hilly. It, the bushes are much more uh, concentrated. So it's not as, it's not going to be um, simple or, you know, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's very, very complicated work for the military to solve that problem. So what's the upshot of that situation right now? They're just going to deal with it when it has to be dealt with? So it's interesting that the fact that the, the research is out means that Israel wants to let its neighbor knows that it knows, right? Uh, in order to, to, to choose the way how to deal with it, because everybody understands that the best way to deal with it is a diplomatic approach, meaning using uh, Resolution 1701. It's a resolution by the United Nations Security Council that, um, you know, you only, all, all you need to do is to enforce that resolution. That resolution was, um, it's from th- 2006. Um, it um, obliged all of, militant Hezbollah terrorist uh, people to to be pushed away from the border. They're not allowed into this region. Uh, obviously, Hezbollah, um, you know, broke the resolution or Lebanon or Syria, or Iran, they all broke this resolution and they are all over the border. So if the world with Israel, France, United States, maybe some more countries from the European Union will be able to push them back uh, such in a, such a way that we will have a total area without Hezbollah people. I mean, residents of Lebanon can live there, but not terrorists, not armed people. Uh, if they can enforce that with the help again of foreign countries, then we will will not need to go into a war in this area, and residents will be able to go back. Um, but you know, and I think one of the reasons the research is out is to maybe assist in a way to promote a diplomatic solution and not a military solution. It's very important. Israel wants a diplomatic solution. It doesn't want to have boots on the ground. Okay. All right. Thanks. That's helpful information, Tal. 
Okay, we're going to close out this daily briefing. Uh, so thank you in the meantime to Miriam and to Tal for being with me on the, today's podcast. It's been good to see you and talk to you. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. We will be back tomorrow with another daily briefing. Uh, this episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this episode or any others, drop us an email, podcast at timesofisrael.com. And of course, always feel free to recommend us to other listeners wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care, have a good day, and may it be a better 2024.